Hello everyone and welcome to Fostering Our Earth, a space for imagining and detailing what our sustainable future really looks like. I'm your host Awe and in this episode I'm actually playing the role of a guest. Early this summer I was invited to join the amazing team over at Spaceship One on their podcast. Since starting Fostering Our Earth, I've gotten the chance to meet with so many people and groups working towards making our sustainable future a reality. And one of these groups is Spaceship One. S1 is part of the Anthropocene Institute, and they produce such high quality content from podcasts to book reviews and so much more. Their goal is to educate and inspire people about climate, energy, health, and justice issues, all in support of our one and only spaceship, Earth. In this conversation, they gave me the opportunity to talk all things sustainability, equity, resilience, infrastructure, and really reflect on my climate journey so far. You should definitely check them out. I've put all their links in the episode description below. Now, without further ado, here's my interview with Spaceship One. Enjoy. Hey, Earthlings. Welcome back to the Spaceship One podcast, where we talk solutions that can repair and fuel our original spaceship Earth for the long haul with abundance for all. I'm your co-host, Anna, and today I'm sharing a conversation between Spaceship One team member Sydney and one of our collaborators, Awe Mauna Wanya. Awe is a climate and sustainability consultant who works with cities to help them with their climate goals and plans, especially around infrastructure. Think roads, bridges, bike lanes, bus lanes, etc. So what does all this stuff have to do with climate change? Well, let's hear from Sydney and Awe. Hey Awe, welcome to the podcast. Hi Sydney, really great to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, awesome. Speaking to like your expertise in urban systems, let's talk infrastructure. So like when we say climate infrastructure, can you like provide some real world examples of how current infrastructure is ill-equipped to handle the rising pressures of climate change? Yeah, totally. I guess first I'll say, I'll start with just a caveat. I, I wouldn't call myself an expert at any of this. I work in it and I am very much passionate about it and I want everyone to engage in more conversations. Anyone could get involved with this discussion with their own experiences. And so with that, let's start with, you know, we're using the term climate infrastructure. Let's just start with like infrastructure. You know, infrastructure is really what enables us to live, you know, whether it's the roads that we drive on or the pipes that provide water to our homes or the transmission lines that provide electricity and energy to us, whether we see it or not, like the built environment infrastructure, it's all there and it's making our life work the way it is. You know, our changing climate puts all of that at risk. So I, you know, whoever's listening to this, ask you, go Google American Society of Civil Engineers, ASCE, uh, their infrastructure report card and just like peruse the website and take a look at the various infrastructure, whether it's within your state or it's just an infrastructure sector you're interested in. So ASE every year or every couple of years, they put out this infrastructure report card that grades our infrastructure in the US and gives it like a score and sort of like provides a state of where things are. And if you're not totally in the know about, you know, infrastructure, just go look at that. It's a pretty website. Go look at it and just get a sense of like where things stand today and understand how worse things could get, you know, with additional climate impacts. One example I saw is power outages. Between 2014 and 2018, there were 638 different transmission 
outage events and severe weather was the predominant cause for most of those. A couple years ago, there was the Texas winter storm that harmed energy systems. Like it became really cold due to the storm in Texas and that hurt its transmission capabilities. And even earlier this year, there was the extreme heat. Over 53,000 people were without power during this extreme heat event in Texas. And when you don't have power, you don't have access to AC to cool yourself down, which then makes the extreme heat that you're going through even worse. And so it's important that we think about what climate hazards specifically do to our infrastructure and add resilience to our infrastructure to make them more equipped to handle the pressures of climate change, whether hurricanes or droughts or wildfires, all these different climate hazards. As someone in California, I, of course, was thinking of wildfires and power outages and things, but it's really something that affects the whole world. Um, mm -hmm. So when we talk about like making infrastructure resilient, right, um, what would you say are some of like the lowest hanging fruit upgrades to infrastructure that's maybe outdated or not ready for a changing climate? Yeah, uh, this is it's it's tough. <laughs> Uh, in my experience, it's complex. But first and foremost, I guess it's just we need to put more money into upgrading our infrastructure, you know, whether it's fixing our bridges, fixing roads, transmission lines for our energy systems. We call this climate resilience, you know, our ability to withstand these shocks to our infrastructure and to our communities. If you have backup power in case like the big grid goes down, like you're able to have battery storage to charge your phone or, you know, power AC in your home or cook, like all these things. And there are different setups and schemes to create more of these resilience hubs, you know, whether it's like through building microgrids or using distributed energy resources. So, you know, more solar, community solar, and yeah, all these different components. There's also like reducing transportation emissions by building transit systems and being less reliant on cars. It takes time to be able to do that, but we could do that. We can add bus lanes, we can invest in more active transportation, bikes and walking, making our cities and communities more walkable. And so we can do it at several scales, whether it's like nationally, you know, like we need budgets to build out big transportation projects uh, or even down all the way to electrifying our homes. It's important that we make all of these changes and these sort of low hanging fruit affordable to folks, especially the ones that impact individual people, because there isn't too much like an individual person can do for, you know, the US budget. I mean, you could go out and vote, you can have your congresspersons advocate for those things. But you know, the things that directly impact you today, when it comes to like electrifying your home, it's important we make it affordable, because like everyone's just trying to like provide for themselves, provide for their families. And when we say, oh, you should go buy solar panels for your rooftop and buy a battery to have backup power, like we need to provide incentives for folks to be able to afford these things, you know, tax breaks or rebates. And then we also support like the additional infrastructure that people need so that they can actually use that, you know, what's the point in giving everyone an electric bike when there are no bike lanes and we have to share the road with big SUVs that can harm you. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I love walking. I love taking transit, but it's not really an accessible option for a lot of places, at least in the United States. So how do you think we can make transit centered systems a reality for cities that might not have that kind of infrastructure yet? Yeah, totally. In my opinion, like there's no sustainable future without sufficient public transit. It touches on so many different issues, climate change, safety, personal finances. 
and I guess to think about this, let's just first start with like understanding the relationship between mobility and development. We live in a very much like car-based society, meaning that we need cars to just about do anything in this country. And as a result, we need places to store them, which leads to like tons of parking spaces, tons of parking garages. It's also like impermeable surfaces, which then leads to stuff like urban heat island effects, exacerbating like extreme heat and climate impacts, especially when we don't have sufficient trees or shade covering. Also, it leads to urban sprawl, it leads to sprawl, meaning like we develop further out because, oh, well, I have a car, I don't need to live downtown, I could live in the suburb, uh, and then commute to work. But cars are dangerous. And like they cause emissions. Even in the, you know, in 2021, there were over 46,000 people who died from car accidents and so many more injured from car accidents. And like the worst thing I, I always hear is like, oh, like pedestrian or biker died from a car accident. But at the same time, we're also like glorifying cars, you know, even with electric vehicles, like electric vehicles are like touted as sort of like the solution, but we'll still have congestion, you know, with electric vehicles, we'll still need places to store them. Uh, and now this has turned into like a little tirade on cars, my own little war on cars. Uh, but I'm just sort of like highlighting the issues and why public transit conversely is just much better. You know, it's not just efficient in terms of moving people and reducing emissions per person, but also it's a lot safer. Not every single person is going to be in a two-ton vehicle that can go 60 miles per hour and, you know, crash into anything at, at any sort of distraction or accident. Transit systems are just really that much better. And we're able to like also dedicate less spaces to stuff like parking garages and parking spaces. Imagine, you know, a road that's not mostly a road for cars, we can then have much more walkable cities. If you remember during the pandemic, when they closed streets and had restaurants be outdoors, and that enables us to like engage with our communities that much more. And I know I've used the term walkable cities, you know, for folks with disability, just making our cities more accessible. So yeah, build out transit systems, even if it's just like more buses. Sure, we need like our high-speed rail, we need our commuter rail, our light rail systems, subway systems. Those are all great some of the lowest hanging fruit, let's give buses their own lanes. You know, the roads already exist, give buses their own lanes, add more buses to the roads and make them come often enough, you know, and let them go everywhere so that like they can improve traffic. And yeah, also with transit, earlier I mentioned urban sprawl and like ways that we can improve transit systems too is like through infill development, which is the idea of like, instead of like sprawling out, let's build more infill housing, let's build housing in areas where we can fit them, you know, like instead of like, again, like having parking lots, let's build housing in these central gathering areas, you know, and let's orient our development around transit. So instead of just like building transit to where people want to live, like let's build the efficient transit system and build, you know, whether it's housing or shopping centers or grocery stores all around transit so that like you can get on the bus or a subway. And as soon as you get to your location, you don't have to walk an additional 10, 15 minutes to get somewhere else, you know, or feel like you're stranded in like a middle of a parking lot, but like everything is right there. And it just makes it so much easier to use transit. Like most trips in the US are less than three miles. If you're able to try to walk or try to bike for trips less than, you know, even if three miles is too much, two miles, even if that's too much, like one mile, if a trip is less than a mile for you, like, Try not to drive, experience what it's like or the struggles that you might face in trying to walk or bike anywhere less than a mile, two miles, or even three miles from where you live. And if you don't feel safe or there's something wrong with it, like complain to, you know, your local representatives, your city council and be like, yo, like 
there's not enough sidewalk, cars are going too fast, and I don't feel safe, that will lead to us advocating for better streets. And so I know I'm saying a lot, but that's because transit and mobility is just so intersected with so many facets of our lives. And we really all need to change the way we think about transit and mobility and all need to like participate in advocating for better systems. So again, a little ranty, a little rambly, but I hope you all were able to like stick with me. No, absolutely. I mean, like you said, transit touches on so many aspects of everyone's lives or has the potential to at Mm -hmm. least, you know, not only just related to climate, but also just finances, personal safety, affordable housing even. So, I mean, it's a big system, a big question, but it's, I think, just a better future we can work towards even at the local level. So. Mm just, you know, sort of broadening things out. Um, How can listeners get involved or advocate for better infrastructure? Yeah, absolutely. There's so much that we can all do. And when we think about infrastructure and our built environment and all these climate efforts, sustainability efforts, like it takes everyone. And so with that, like I say, it's important that you learn, you observe and you communicate and when possible you act too, you know, with learning, whether it's through reading books or listening to podcasts or listening to experts and hearing what they have to say, like that's super important when it comes to observing. Like that means you paying attention to the world around you. Earlier I mentioned, you know, if it's a trip less than one mile, see if you can walk or bike to that location if you're able to. In doing that, you'll observe things that you never would have if you just sat in your car. You know, observe what happens to your home during an extreme heat event. Are you able to still turn your AC on? You know, I live in Southern California and last year during the extreme heat here in LA, like they sent out like a a flex alert. They called for customers to like voluntarily conserve electricity. You know, they asked us not to use laundry machines and our air conditioning during certain peak hours, you know, because like our grade needed to be able to handle it. And just like pay attention to the infrastructure stuff that happens all around us during these events and think about how that impacts you and think about who might be vulnerable from it. Like, you know, do your community members have AC? Do the vulnerable folks in your neighborhood have access to stay cool? You know, whether they're older or they have health conditions, like pay attention to who is vulnerable and how your community deals with it. All of those observations you're making, like they form the basis of your own experience that you can like advocate for and talk about. And with that, it's important you communicate and you talk about it. Talk about it with your friends, with your family, with folks at your work. You don't have to directly be involved with climate and sustainability, like whether you are working in healthcare, you're working at gym, you're, you know, a barista, like whatever you're doing, like bring it up and talk about it because it impacts our lives and it will impact our futures. And then finally, like it's important you act whenever it's possible, whenever an opportunity comes for you to act, whether it's voting, going to a city council meeting to like, just give your thoughts on what happened or, you know, your experience walking down the street and you felt unsafe, use your voice. Um, Yeah. Learn, observe, communicate and act when possible. Yeah, I love that. I think that things rooted in our own experiences can be very powerful and you can act from it, but also while learning about how your community members live just by observing. I think that can be just a super powerful way to not only get involved, but also be a better advocate in the future, just sort of having an understanding of of the way these things impact us um, and impact others for sure. I always love to hear like stories about how people get into our fields and how we all came to want to work toward a more just future, a healthier future for everyone. 
How did you originally get into infrastructure work, climate work, things like that? Yeah, it's sort of this passion that's bubbled over the last couple of years for me. Um, my background is in civil and structural engineering. So I studied while I was an undergrad. And I went to school in Baltimore, and I went to grad school in the Bay Area during the pandemic. And my experiences over the last couple of years, you know, while in undergrad and in grad school, built the foundation of my interest and passion in climate infrastructure. So in Baltimore, while I was an undergrad, I studied civil engineering. And while the engineering portions were really great, I was particularly interested in what infrastructure meant for people. Um, I had two internship experiences that really cued my mind, you know, onto what injustice really means and what equity in the built environment really looks like. The first was after my first year in undergrad, where I worked with an organization called the Black Church Food Security Network. And there it was all about working to address food insecurity issues in Baltimore using church space to address health inequities. You know, we often find that marginalized folks, people of color, Black folks have lower health outcomes, worse health outcomes, you know, shorter life expectancies, higher risks of heart disease. When you look at where food is and the food that we consume and what access we have to fresh and healthy produce, like it's not there, you know, like we find that communities live in food deserts and, you know, learning terms like food apartheid and learning, wow, that's crazy. Like the built environment and our access to food leads to health outcomes. Um, in my second year, I entered with the Maryland Department of Transportation. And that was also a really insightful experience because now I'm not just food systems, now I'm looking at mobility, you know, and thinking about people's access to be able to move around and how the lack of adequate transportation options, you know, affordable, expensive transportation options can really impact people. You know, when your city doesn't have an equitable transit system, which people rely on to get to work, you know, it makes it harder for folks to be able to live their lives. And if a kid misses their, if a student misses their bus, you know, to school and another bus doesn't come for another 20 minutes, then it's very easy for that student to end up not going to school that day, you know, and just like skipping class or missing school. And it's like, Equitable transit enables and allows for opportunity for people to move up the social ladder. And then finally, like the pandemic. During the pandemic, you see how our poor public health infrastructure uh, led to people falling ill and tons of people dying. You realize that when we don't have a good foundation, the worst outcomes fall on marginalized folks, you know, and climate change, the impact of climate hazards are going to be like a sort of never ending pandemic, you know especially for marginalized populations. And so all of those experiences, you know, like one after the other, sort of just like building my own belief system and like realizing that, okay, there is a relationship between the built environment and people. What does equity mean? What does justice mean? So now I, I work with cities. I decided, okay, let's do more of this work. So my formal job, you know, is I am a cities consultant. I, I work with cities to help them reach their climate goals. And I do more than that too. You know, I talk climate, I engage with climate and sustainability, and I want to make that accessible to folks and want to make sustainability and systems thinking, you know, commonplace. Because I think the more we talk about it, the more we know about it, the more action we can take. Thank you so much, Arwe. I really enjoyed all your insights. We've been following and interacting with your Instagram account for a while, uh, Fostering Our Earth, uh, but you also have a newsletter and podcast as well. Um, so we're really excited to start bringing people in our online community to our podcast, learning from each other and hearing each other's stories. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. 
thank you for the space to just ramble <laughs> and share some of my thoughts. Yeah, I really enjoyed being here. Hey, Earthlings, it's your co-host, Anna, again. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, let us know by leaving a five-star rating or, hey, even share it with a friend. We love making solutions-oriented content around climate, energy, health, and justice for you all. Speaking of, check out our latest blog post at spaceshipone.org, all about modernizing the U.S. electric grid. It actually ties in nicely with this episode and expands on some of the points Awe brought up about how we can reduce emissions while continuing to meet our energy needs and meet the ultimate goal of climate resilience. Stay tuned for our next episode where my co-host Paloma and I break down some of the history and guiding principles of environmentalism and what specific brand of environmentalism we think is most needed today. Thank mm-hmm. you.